Hey guys, it's Emma and Shannon, and welcome back to our podcast, She's an Engineer. In this episode, we are doing the fourth edition of Remarkable Women in STEM. So let's just get right into it, and I'll hand it off to Emma. Okay, so our first person is Sally Ride. She was born on May 26, 1951, and unfortunately passed away on July 23, 2012, at the age of 61. She's most known for being the first American woman in space, where she made her journey on June 18, 1983. So I'll just go into like her childhood first and then we'll get into like her professional accomplishments and all that she's done for women and girls in STEM and breaking that glass ceiling. So she was born as Sally Kristen Ride. She was born on May 26, 1951 in Encino, California to Carol Joyce and Dale Burdell Ride. And growing up, they ha- she had a very supportive household, and she also had a sister, and they were both encouraged to follow their individual interests, and they had a happy, loving home. So I think this is part of the reason why she was able to go and, like, pursue what she wanted to do and break that glass ceiling. As a child, she was an avid tennis player, and she actually dreamed of becoming a professional. So, you know... Go athletic, accomplished women. (laughs) She -hmm. started playing at the age of 10, and she actually won a scholarship to the Westlake School for Girls in L.A. And when she was in her teens, she ranked in the top 20 nationally on the junior tennis circuit, which is, like, pretty impressive. Being the top 20 in the country in, you know, the junior league, that's pretty cool. And then after graduating from high school, she started going to Swarthmore College. That's in Pennsylvania. But in her sophomore year, she actually left because she wanted to go and pursue a career in tennis. But then after three months of doing that, she then decided that college was a better option for her. And then she went back to college, but she didn't go back to Swarthmore. She actually went and enrolled in Stanford University, which is also very impressive. So then in 1973, she received a Bachelor of Science in Physics and a Bachelor of Arts in English. So she was a dual degree major. Then after doing her bachelor's, she continued to study at Stanford and she earned her Master of Science in Physics in 1975. And then she earned her PhD in Physics in 1978. Prior to her earning her PhD in physics in 1978, in 1977, she actually answered a newspaper ad that was placed by NASA, which is also the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. I'm sure everyone's heard of it. They're the ones who put people on the moon, everything like that, which that like surprises me by like how people were getting jobs, like answering newspaper ads. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know. That's, like, not something that I've ever envisioned. But isn't that how people, like, dated previously, too? They could answer newspaper ads? Yeah, that's how my parents met. They met (laughs) through the newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) It's, like, modern... Or, like, modern version would be, like, dating online. Like, finding people on a website or something. 
Yes. Anyway. <laughs> okay. So NASA actually realized that they needed like technological and scientific skilled individuals to contribute to the future of the space programs as they needed good pilots. So they began to search for young scientists to serve as quote-unquote mission specialists on future space flights. So not people that were working necessarily as pilots, but people with other skills that could contribute to the success of the launch. And Sally Ride became one of only five women that were selected for NASA's class of 1978. And if you recall previously, you know, she was very athletic. She ranked in the top 20 and and she almost pursued tennis professionally. So obviously she had a very natural like athletic ability and this like really helped her as she trained with NASA, as she started training with NASA in 1977. And she learned how to parachute jump and do water survival training um, along with her technical and scientific instruction at NASA. So then she embarked on this mission that we now like recognize her for today. She was one of the five crew members that were aboard the space shuttle Challenger STS-7. And on June 18th, 1983, she became the first American woman in space, and she was also the youngest American in space at the time. And this mission took about one week. And when she was being interviewed prior to her launch about, like, her preparation for going into space... She was also asked many questions that I assume that many men would not be asked about going into space. For example, like she was asked how space going into space was going to affect her ability to reproduce and what kind of makeup she was going to take on the mission. Yeah, which honestly, I hate to sound presumptuous, but that I, I feel like that's very sexist. That's just like, just like very like misogynist in my mind, because like those are mm-hmm. not questions that you would ask of like a male astronaut when mm-hmm. you're preparing for uh, a journey into space, right? Like I'm pretty sure NASA, like I, I've heard this before, but I'm pretty sure like NASA asked like either her or another woman, how many, like, tampons or, like, sanitary pads they needed for, like, one mission. And they were, like, oh, I think it was, like, is a 100 enough or something like that? Which is, like, <laughs> clearly you don't understand what women need because yeah, 100 is way in that, more. In that situation, it's appreciated that they're thinking about that. It's just kind of funny that that was... That that was how many they thought that the woman needed. Yeah, if women needed a hundred sanitary pads or like tampons, like per cycle, I'm pretty sure we would already be broke by now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, but you know, she's probably she's definitely nicer and had more grace than I have, and <laughs> she actually said like. It's too bad this is such a big deal. It's too bad our society isn't further along. So she was actually very well-spoken. You know, she handled it well. 
And on the mission, she was actually the flight engineer for the Challenger STS-7. She launched two communication satellites and she operated the shuttle's mechanical arm and conducted experiments. Later in an interview in 2008, she said, On launch day, there was so much excitement and so much happening around us in crew quarters, even on the way to the launch pad. I didn't really think about it that much at the time, but I came to appreciate what an honor it was to be selected to be the first to get a chance to go into space. After her first mission, she actually went on another shuttle mission on October 5th, 1984. So about like a year and a few months later, she went on another shuttle mission, which was called the STS-41G. She then on that shuttle spent eight days conducting scientific observations of the Earth, obviously, from space. And she also worked on refueling techniques for the shuttles. Then after this second mission, I don't know if you recall the 1986 Challenger accident, which was, like, very unfortunate, where, Mm -hmm. you know, they launched the Challenger, and it basically, like, blew up. So she worked on investigating that, you know, obviously to try to prevent things like that happening in the future. And after this investigation, she then took on the role of being a special assistant to the NASA administration for long-range and strategic planning. Mm -hmm. So... Overall, she also served as the director of the California Space Science Institute, which is a research institute of the University of California, and she has worked at the physics department of University of California, San Diego, as a physicist and a physics professor, and she was also a member of the President's Committee of Advisors on Science and Technology and served on the advisory board of the National Women's History Museum, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's done a lot. She's had a lot of positions, you know, very important positions. And unfortunately, she passed away on July 23, 2012, after a 17-month battle with pancreatic cancer at the age of 61. So during her life, she pretty much kept her personal life private. You can see like throughout our explanation of her, there's not really much mention of her private life, like her personal Mm -hmm. and intimate life with her partners. It was mostly about like, you know, her accomplishments, which is, which is really great. You know, she was able to choose like what to share with the world, which I think is really important. She actually did marry a fellow astronaut named Steve Hawley in 1982, which is prior to like her two missions, but they actually divorced five years later in 1987. And then after she passed away in 2012, there was more revealed about her private life by her longtime partner, Tam O'Shaughnessy. She revealed that they had like a 27-year relationship after meeting as children while competing in tennis competitions and like remaining close friends into the future with that friendship blossoming into love. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that, like, Sally Ride wasn't open about her her sexual identity or, you know, her relationship with O'Shaughnessy as, like, a partner and as a business partner. Like, they were very open about their relationship. So... Mm-hmm. So not only is she, like, an advocate for, like, women in STEM, but she's definitely also, like, amazing for being an advocate for the LGBTQIA plus community and Mm -hmm. being, like, the first acknowledged gay astronaut. It just takes Mm -hmm. a lot of courage. So not only was she the first American woman in space, she's also the first acknowledged gay astronaut. And then a year later after she passed, President Obama actually honored her with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and her longtime partner, Tam O'Shaughnessy, accepted the award for her. And that is the story of Sally Ride, our, the first American woman in space. Yeah, that's amazing. It's crazy that she was so gifted at tennis to rank nationally and also get her bachelor's master's and phd in physics and right. then go on to become an astronaut that's just awesome i feel like that's like somebody's ideal child yes. to be academically <laughs> and athletically gifted but i'm sure that's like what honestly that's definitely what like nasa's looking for right mm-hmm. they need yeah. astronauts to definitely i mean part of becoming an astronaut is also like undergoing like these like physical tests like these physical Mm -hmm. exams and you definitely need to be physically fit enough to be an astronaut so yes for sure yes awesome well moving on to our second remarkable woman in stem we are going to talk about ellen swallow who is also known as the first environmental engineer but going back into her childhood, Ellen was born in Massachusetts in 1842, and her parents were former teachers who decided to homeschool Ellen because they did not believe the nearby primary school offered a strong enough education for girls, which is pretty cool. And when Ellen was a teenager, their family moved to a different town so Ellen could attend one of the few high schools in the region accepting female students. Ellen also learned to work hard at a young age, and in high school, she excelled in math, science, and foreign languages. Also at the time, she managed accounting and inventory for her parents' grocery store. After graduation, her family couldn't afford to send her to college, so Ellen took on jobs in nursing, housekeeping, and teaching, and saved up enough money by the age of 26 She enrolled at Vassar College, which was a women's college in Poughkeepsie, New York. And although Ellen was drawn to many subjects within science, she decided to major in chemistry because it had practical applications to daily life. This desire to connect scientific research with the real world became a key characteristic of her impressive career. While at Vassar, she was influenced by Charles Farrer, Uh, the professor of chemistry who insisted on the application of science on everyday household situations. Ellen also came under the guidance of Maria Mitchell, the professor of astronomy and an activist for the advancement of women's work in science. Mitchell saw a diligent and bright future for Ellen in scientific innovation. 
Ellen graduated from Vassar College in 1870 with the goal of obtaining, obtaining paid work in a chemical lab. She applied to companies across the U.S., but none of them wanted to hire a woman at the time. And after turning Ellen down, one lab suggested applying to MIT. And although MIT was not yet a co-educational college, Ellen applied. And the admissions board was impressed with Ellen's education, but the board members were afraid to publicly open the doors to a woman. As a compromise, they admitted Ellen as a special student, and she was not charged tuition nor placed on any official rosters, but in all other aspects, she was the first female student at MIT. As a research assistant, Ellen was in charge of a project examining water sewage for the Massachusetts Board of Public Health, and she earned an, an international reputation as an expert in water quality analysis. And in 1873, Ellen officially graduated from MIT with her second undergraduate degree. Vassar College also recognized Ellen with a master's in arts, so she technically had three degrees at this point. And while Ellen was a student uh, and an, an instructor at MIT, a mineralogy department named Robert H. Richards asked her to help translate a German text needed for his research. The two quickly formed a working and professional relationship, and in 1873, Robert proposed to Ellen as they worked side by side in his lab, and Ellen waited two years before saying yes. She wanted to be sure their marriage would never stand in the way of her work, and Ellen and Robert never had any children and dedicated their marriage to supporting one another's research. Ellen wished to earn her PhD at MIT, but the faculty would not allow a woman to do so at the time. As head of the mineralogy department, Robert made enough money to support them both, and this allowed Ellen to pursue a career in sciences without pay for many years. In 1876, she raised enough money to open the Women's Laboratory at MIT, and it was a space where women could conduct in-depth research in chemistry, biology, and other scientific areas, and Ellen served as the instructor of the lab. In 1883, MIT officially opened its doors to women allowed them and allowed them to conduct research alongside the men, and MIT closed the women's laboratory and offered Ellen an official position as an instructor of sanitary chemistry, which included the study of air, water, and uh, human waste and sewage in connection with public health and disease. And it was a role that she held into her death. In the same year MIT opened the nation's first laboratory of sanitary chemistry, she was appointed the instructor. And in 1887, at the request of the Massachusetts State Board of Health, Ellen and her assistants performed a survey of the water quality of the inland bodies of the state of Massachusetts, many of which were already polluted with industrial waste and municipal sewage. Within that time, she participated in sewage treatment research. She analyzed over 40,000 samples and this led to the so-called uh, Richard's Normal Chlorine Map, which was a map that was that predicted pollution in inland water bodies in the state of Massachusetts. The map plotted the chloride concentrations in waters of the state, 
and it illustrated the natural distribution of chlorides from the ocean. Her map plotted greater than 6.5 parts per million of chloride near the coast of Cape Cod and concentrations in excess of 10 parts per million and mapped like the parts per million of chloride across the state. Thereby, waters with chloride concentrations that deviated from the plot could be suspected of human pollution. It led to the first state water quality standards in the nation and the first modern municipal sewage treatment plant in Lowell, Massachusetts. From 1887 to 1897, Ellen served as the official water analyst for the State Board of Health while continuing as an instructor at MIT. And she and her colleagues wrote a classic text in the field of sanitary engineering called Air, Water, and Food from a Sanitary Standpoint in 1900. Also, from her days at the women's laboratory, Ellen was very concerned about applying scientific principles to domestic topics such as good nutrition, pure foods, proper clothing, physical fitness, and effective practices that would allow women more time for pursuits other than cooking and cleaning. And in 1882, she published The Chemistry of Cooking and Cleaning, a manual for housekeepers, and by setting up model kitchens open to the public, establishing programs of study and organizing conferences, Ellen campaigned tirelessly for the new discipline of home economics. And in 1890, Ellen established the New England Kitchen of Boston, which offered cooking demonstrations, instruction on proper housekeeping techniques, and uh, nutrition for, I guess, a science-based view of meals for visitors. In 1894, her research was replicated at the Chicago, Chicago's World Fair. And growing out of several summer conferences held at Lake Placid, New York, the American Home Economics Association was formed in 1908 with Richards as its first president. In 1910, Ellen received something that she wanted but had long been denied. Smith College, a women's college, awarded her an honorary PhD in recognition of her life's work. And less than a year later, on March 30th, 1911, Ellen died of a heart attack. And she was still a member of MIT's faculty, actively conducting research until the day she died. So that sums up Ellen Swallow Richards. And it's just pretty cool that she dedicated her entire life and her husband dedicated his entire life to advancing sanitary engineering and applying it in the household which i think is an interesting twist on it too i agree i think she was also able to like appeal to other modern women you know Mm -hmm. with her sanitary engineering because i definitely know at that time that was i think a little bit before or like during the time of like typhoid mary if you know what that's about it's like this home cook who you know spread typhoid to all of the to like the family members and other people that she served like with her like uncooked food so Mm -hmm. it's really important to teach you know sanitation and hygiene i think she would have liked i Lillian Gilbreth. We've talked about her in a previous episode, and she also did 
like housekeeping techniques, but instead of doing sanitation engineering, she did more like efficiency so like industrial engineering so Mm -hmm. them like combined together I feel like makes the perfect pair oh yes definitely (laughs) awesome but yeah she's really cool Mm -hmm. okay so next we're gonna go on to our last individual for this episode who is Patricia Bath or we should call her Dr. Patricia Bath Patricia Bath was born on November 4th, 1942, and she passed away in 2019. So her she's most known for being an ophthalmologist and a laser scientist and doing innovative research for blindness prevention techniques like treatment and cures. She was also the first woman chair of ophthalmology in the U.S. at Drew UCLA in 1983. Dr. Patricia Bath was born in Harlem, New York on November 4, 1942 to Rupert Bath, who was an educated and well-traveled merchant seaman, and Gladys Bath, a homemaker and house cleaner. They were both very loving and supportive parents who encouraged their children to focus on education and believe in their ideas and dreams. As a child, Dr. Patricia Bath developed a love of books, travel, and science, and she excelled in school and began to show an aptitude for biology in high school. At this high school, she became editor of the Charles Evans Hughes High School Science Paper and won many science awards. She was actually selected at the age of 16 in 1959 to participate in a summer program that was offered by the National Science Foundation at Yeshiva University, which is very cool. She gained notoriety because when she worked there, mind you, this was at the age of 16, she derived a mathematical equation for predicting cancer cell growth. And one of her mentors in the program, Dr. Robert O. Bernard, incorporated her findings into a paper he presented at an international conference that was held in Washington, D.C. in 1960. So just when she was 17 years old, which is very impressive. After this, she won a 1960 Merit Award from Mademoiselle Magazine, and she completed high school in just two and a half years, and then entered New York City's Hunter College to study chemistry and physics. So she earned her Bachelor's of Arts from Hunter College in 1964, and then went to medical school at Howard University in Washington, D.C. A girl after my own dreams, honestly. (laughs) So after she finished her medical education at Howard University, she then did her internship or, like, residency at Harlem Hospital. So her first year from 1968 to 1969 And then she did a fellowship in ophthalmology at Columbia University from 1969 to 1970. 
She then completed her training at New York University between 1970 and 1973, where she was the first African-American resident in ophthalmology. During this time, she also got married and had a daughter, Iraka, who was born in 1972. So motherhood soon became her priority, but she was also able to complete a fellowship in corneal transplantation and keratoprosthesis, which is to replace a human cornea with an artificial one. Kerato meaning like cornea and prosthesis meaning like artificial replacement. Yeah. So when she was an intern and she kept, you know, shuttling between Harlem Hospital and Columbia University, she was quick to observe that the eye clinic in Harlem, at the eye clinic in Harlem, half the patients were blind or visually impaired. But in Columbia, obviously, there were very few obviously blind patients. So after observing this, she conducted a retrospective epidemiological study, which documented that blindness among blacks was double that among whites. And she reached the conclusion that this high prevalence of blindness among Blacks was due to the lack of access of ophthalmic care, meaning, like, care for the eyes or, like, even, like, preventative medicine, which is, like, a lot of the stuff that I think a lot of medical schools focus on now because now we do have the research to say, like, hey, like, these different populations just don't get, like, the care they need, so... We need to give them more access to care so that we can, you know, equalize these prevalences because obviously one is a higher prevalence than the other and it's not really due to like genetics. Then there must be Mm -hmm. like a socioeconomic or like cultural or just like a structural issue that's going on. Mm -hmm. So as a result, she proposed a new discipline that was known as community ophthalmology which is now operative worldwide. And this is a field that combines aspects of public health, which I kind of just talked about, community medicine and clinical ophthalmology as a way to offer primary care to underserved populations. So there are volunteers that are trained as eye workers, which visit senior centers and daycare programs to test vision and screen for cataracts, glaucoma, and other eye conditions. And this has saved thousands whose problems would have otherwise gone undiagnosed and untreated and therefore may have caused them to eventually like lose their vision. They also identify children who need eyeglasses. And so by doing that, they also give these children a better chance for success at school because, you know, you can't really succeed at school if you can't see what you're supposed to be learning. Mm -hmm. She was also really instrumental in bringing ophthalmic surgical services to Harlem Hospital's eye clinic, which didn't perform eye surgery in 1968. She persuaded her professors at Columbia to actually operate on these blind patients for free, and she volunteered her time as an assistant surgeon. And so They actually performed the first major eye operation at Harlem Hospital in 1970 as a result of her efforts and determination. After this, 
She joined the faculty of UCLA in 1974 and Charles R. Drew University as an assistant professor of surgery and ophthalmology at Drew and UCLA, respectively. And the following year, she actually became the first woman faculty member in UCLA's Jules Stein Eye Institute in the Department of Ophthalmology. Apparently, she was offered an office in the basement next to the lab animals, and she refused to accept that office spot. And when she did this, she did this definitely with grace and with tactness. She didn't say it was racist or sexist. She just said it was inappropriate, and she was able to get acceptable office space. And then... By 1983, she was actually chair of the ophthalmology residency training program at Drew UCLA, and she was the first woman in the U.S. to hold such a position. She definitely experienced lots of instances of sexism and racism throughout her tenure at UCLA and Drew, even though these universities definitely extolled like equality and condemning discrimination. She was determined that her scientific endeavors were not to be obstructed by the glass ceilings in the U.S., so she took her research abroad to Europe, and her work was accepted at the Laser Medical Center of Berlin, West Germany, the Rothschild Eye Institute of Paris, France, and the Lowboro Institute of Technology in England. At these institutions, she achieved her personal best in research and laser science, and these are obviously evidenced by her now, like, laser patents on eye surgery. So, even though she, like, was working at universities and doing all of this research, she was also, in 1977, she also founded a the American Institute for the Prevention of Blindness with three of her other colleagues, which is an organization whose mission is to protect, preserve, and restore the gift of sight. It's founded on the principle that eyesight is a basic human right and that primary eye care must be available to everyone everywhere, regardless of their socioeconomic status. And most of this work is done through ophthalmic assistants who are trained in programs at major universities. This institute mostly does like global initiatives to provide newborn infants with protective anti-infection eye drops to ensure that children who are malnourished receive vitamin A supplements that are necessary for vision and to vaccinate children against diseases like measles that can lead to blindness. So because she was director of the AIPB, or the American Institute for the Prevention of Blindness, she actually traveled widely um, to perform surgery, to teach new medical techniques, donate equipment, lecture, and meet with colleagues and witness the disparity in health services that are available in industrial and developing countries. Besides this, you know, besides doing all of this, she was also a laser scientist and inventor. So she was very interested in doing research on cataracts, and she was interested in inventing a new device and method to remove cataracts. 
So then in 1981, she actually invented the laser phaco probe, which is actually like a surgical tool that uses a laser to vaporize cataracts. And this is done via a tiny one millimeter insertion into the patient's eye. So then after you do this and after you remove the cataract, the patient's lens can then be removed and you can insert a replacement lens. So I'll give a brief like explanation on what cataracts are. So these are cloudy blemishes that commonly form in people's eye lenses, especially in men and women over the age of 60, and eventually these can lead to blindness. So typically these are treat these were treated with um, a kind of harsh, maybe risk risky traditional surgical procedure, but because of Dr. Bath's innovative device, the laser phaco probe, this is now a faster, more accurate, and minimally invasive technique, which we want to do the least harm. So we want to be able to develop techniques that are the least invasive. And then it took her five more years to perfect the concept and apply for the patent. And she received her first patent for the device in May of 1988, followed by another in December 1988. And she holds four U.S. patents related to the laser FACO and other international patents as well. It's been used overseas since 2000 and has been improved for safety by the FDA in the U.S. So also with the keratoprosthesis device, she was able to recover the sight of several individuals who have been blind for over 30 years. Wow. Yeah. And then in 1993... She retired from the UCLA Medical Center and was appointed to the honorary medical staff. And then after that, she has advoc- she advocated for telemedicine, which all of us probably know by now, which is the use of electric- electronic communication to provide medical services to remote areas where healthcare is limited. And she's held positions in telemedicine at Howard University and St. George's University in Grenada. And her greatest passion, though, remains to be, like, fighting blindness. And this was all the way up until her death, which was unfortunately from cancer complications in May of 2019. And that's the story of Dr. Patricia Bath, not only an inventor, but also a great surgeon and physician and public health advocate. Yes, that's incredible. I'm assuming they're still using a lot of her tools today. And yes. it seems like that like a lot of her inventions changed the entire field of op- ophthalmology and cataract surgery. Yes. Probably forever. Like that that's incredible. I know. Mm-hmm. And coming from like a time where like now definitely a lot more females are doctors and inventors and just being like in a time period where, you know, she was like basically like the first to do like any of these things is just so incredible. Mm-hmm. She just did so much in her lifetime. I mean, like she's definitely someone to look up to. Mm-hmm. She clearly cared so much for her patients because you know, she was able to identify all of these like problems in her patient population and be observant, not just go to her job day to day and just treat people day to day. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, definitely what's her life's mission yes. to help those with blindness and other eye issues. Yes, for sure. Yeah, so that was all three of our individuals that we are going to p- talk about today. But I'm sure like you guys will have a part five sometime soon because, you know, there are still so many more like women in STEM that we haven't talked about that have done amazing things. But if you have Mm -hmm. anyone that you would like to recommend for us to talk about and to research about, then please reach out to either Shannon or I. Yes, that sounds great. We hope this spreads more awareness of women in engineering. So now you know their names and some very key trailblazers in the field to look up to. And I think that sums our episode up for today. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you again in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye.